0: Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. evening. All right. That's what I want to hear on a nice cold evening. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African-American Department here at the Central location. It is my pleasure to introduce our guests for this enlightening discussion. We are pleased to welcome Alondra Nelson, back to the Pratt Library to discuss her new book, The Social Life of DNA. Alondra Nelson is Dean of Social Science and Professor of Sociology at Columbia University. She last visited the Pratt Library in the fall of 2011, when she came here to discuss her now award-winning book, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and The Flight Against Medical Discrimination. After speaking about the social life of DNA, Alonja will be joined in brief conversation by Professor Nathaniel Comfort, and and then we will open things up for discussion with the audience. But before we begin, bring her to the podium, I would like to introduce her guest, Nathaniel Comfort. He is the Bloomberg Chair of Astrobiology at the Library of Congress and NASA and professor of the history of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. A historian of of biology and genetics, he is the author of The Science of Human Perfection, How Genes Became the Heart of American Medicine, The Tangled Field, Barbara McClintock's Search for the Patterns of Genetic Control, and numerous articles and essays for scholarly and popular audiences. His writing and commentary have been featured And Aeon, The Believer, The New York Times, Book Review, The Nation, and NPR. And he is the author of the popular Genotopia blog. Wow. (laughs) Please join me in introducing Alondra Nelson and Nathaniel Comfort to the Pratt Library.
1: Thank you, Viviane, very much for that uh, kind introduction um, and for welcoming me and uh, Nathaniel Comfort here. I have very impressive friends, and I'm glad that they say yes when I ask them to do little endeavors with me. uh, as Vivian said, this is uh, my second book launch pretty much at the Pratt, so when my when my book came out in 2011, um, I all but launched it here, and um, it was a great omen for the future, so uh, the Pratt Library um, is my good luck charm with regards to publications, and it also is a library that um, is close, close-ish to my family, so this whole half, the side of the room um, is my family, my cousins, and many of them were here for the launch of, of my Black Panther book body and soul as well, so the Pratt is um, uh, near and dear to my heart and very special, and um, it's special for me to have my my family here and particularly my mother, Dolores, who's seated here, um, to talk about a book that's about genealogy and ancestry and family and what we try to make of that in the world. Um, So I'm going to just read a a few passages from the book and then um, join Nathaniel in conversation and then join all of you in conversation. Um, So thank you. So like many Americans, my family and I were riveted by the Roots miniseries when it first aired in January 1977. I vividly recall sitting in front of the television with my mother, father, sister, and two brothers watching the story of Alex Haley's family unfold in technicolor. One of my brothers is here in the back. Um, My father, having just completed a tour at sea, reclined in an armchair, his feet up, my mother was on the sofa with one or two of us kids twined tightly around her. The other two of us were on the floor, alternately, alternately being admonished by our parents not to lie too close to the television screen or told co- courtesy of another sibling to move out of the way. On Sunday evening, when it became apparent that we could view the first episode of Roots in its entirety, well past our bedtimes, we knew where we were in uncharted territory. The Roots occasion provided one of those unforgettable moments when a child sees her parents in new light. Watching Roots, I also watched my parents, who were visibly stirred by Haley's account. More than a few times during those eight evenings, my mother's eyes welled with tears. She frequently shook her head and murmured, "Mm, mm, mm," as I had heard Mary, her Philadelphia-born mother, our grandmother, do on many times. Uh, as, a, as an inherited, uh, this was in perhaps an inherited response to emotions that defy language. My father, who held from New, who hails from New Orleans, was characteristically stoic, but occasionally allowed a "That's a damn shame" during an especially tragic or graphic scene. <laughs> Those who know my father know it's true. I now realize that while watching Roots, my parents were watching us, their children. They were worried and protective, interspersing their own commentary about the television series between the scenes, hoping to ameliorate the dramatic effect of this painful history. The Roots Effect expanded beyond our family home, perched on the edge of a craggy canyon in California, San Diego, California, to my grade school nestled in a valley. I was called Kizzy and Kunta Kente by my mostly blonde classmates during first period at my Southern California private school. But during our lunch breaks, the teasing gave way to earnest but clumsy conversations. In the schoolyard, we tried to make sense of what Roots meant for our interracial friendships, for our discussions in Sister Nora's American history class, and for our nation in the wake of its bicentennial. In our own ways, even as children, we each wondered, who are we in relation to this history depicted in Roots? Did this really happen? And if so, how did we get from then to now? And where do we go from here? Haley made his mark as a collaborator on the autobiography of Malcolm X, the late activist's influential account of his political transformation published in 1965. The work emerged at the beginning of the Black Power era. Roots, published in 76, and the television miniseries on which it was based, which premiered a year later, were culminating symbols of the era. This was the time of the Afro and the dashiki of the Black is Beautiful ethos. Between 1965 and 1977, African Americans turned to their African origins with intensity. The interest in African origins and, in turn, genealogy—this uh, interest in African origin, origins and, in turn, genealogy—was peaked in 1977. This watershed year also saw the publication of *Black Genealogy* by Charles Blockson, a primer of root seeking attuned to the needs of African-Americans who faced especially steep hurdles in tracing ancestry. The Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, the first national black organization dedicated to genealogy and family history, was also established in 1977. In the intervening decades, genealogy only grew an appeal for African-Americans. In the last decade, with the decoding of the human genome, new tools were introduced that expanded the popularity of, genetic geneal- of genealogy exponentially, and moreover, gave it multifaceted uses. The social life of DNA um, unearths what we try to do and what we try to accomplish with genetic ancestry testing with this 21st century tool of roots, of root seeking, including political and legal uses. I found that this might include establishing ties with African ancestral homelands, transforming citizenship, recasting history, or making the case for reparations, which as we know, is an issue that is once again part of our national conversation. In this work, I describe these lesser-known but momentous uses of genetic ancestry testing um, as endeavors in which uh, genetic analysis is placed at the center of uh, social reunification efforts, and I call these reconciliation projects. In the last decade, a spate of genealogy-themed reality television shows, including Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s African-American Lives, have highlighted the the ease and the immediacy with which the roots endeavor can be undertaken, be it carried out for a root seeker by another individual, a certified genealogist, or a company, such as Gates' own African DNA company, which sells traditional and genetic genealogy services. On this novel family history, history landscape, The apex of the Root's journey is the reveal. A familiar concept in reality television. In this case, new or surprising information, often based on genetic test results, is presented to a subject who experiences, um, uh, who, who shares the experience of their response in the presence of an audience. The public reveal reminds Uh, Us that the work of genetic ancestry testing is um, is also about the larger group, about an audience or a community. For the descendants of slaves, this form of public witness may also be a political occasion, a demand that others make note of the sobering historical dynamics out of which some African family trees grow. In the post-Alex Haley era, in which the labor of genealogy can be at a remove from the root seeker because one can use genetic ancestry testing services, genealogy, genealogists may take on a new role. No longer solely the family history archaeologists engaged in the lonely pursuit of excavating vital records and census documents, they can become performers whose job it is to enact genealogical information that is revealed to them. Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, then Less prominent root seekers than those featured on televised genealogy programs have taken to social media sites to record, perform, and broadcast their reveals and to disseminate their reflections on genetic genealogy and the testing experience. So a key to the success of the African Ancestry Company, which is a genetic um, direct-to-consumer genetic um, genealogy company that um, was established in D.C. in 2003, has been the role of Rick Kittles, an African-American geneticist and the company's co-founder, and Gina Page, who was trained in economics at Stanford and is an African-American woman who sort of runs the business side of the company and is its president. So from the very beginning, they used... um, the participation of public of celebrities and public ancestry reveals as a way to promote interest in their genetic genealogy service. Years before African American Lives and Finding Your Roots became standard television care fare, uh, Kittles and Page were sharing their matrilineal and patrilineal test kits with newscasters, singers, actors, and other African American notables. Although the genetic genealogy reveal has now become commonplace, when I met with Gina Page at African Ancestry's headquarters in Washington, D.C., she noted that our company was the first to introduce it. African Ancestry was the first genetic ancestry company to highlight celebrity root seekers, she said. Absolutely, we pioneered this, she asserted. The new company had limited marketing resources and celebrity endorsement was a strategy developed to draw attention to African ancestry services and also to devote social uh, to, um, to and also to the social import of the work its first celebrity client was the actor Lavar Burton in 2003 quote people were calling us a 21st century roots what better way to represent the 21st century roots than to tell Kunta Kente where he's from close quote Page said this of the actor who first came to acclaim as the protagonist of the television miniseries based on Haley's book. African Ancestry's early celebrity reveals also included U.S. Representative Diane Watson of California, actress Vanessa Williams of um, Beverly Hills 90210 fame, not the other Vanessa Williams, and the actor Isaiah Washington in 2005. For Washington, the experience would prove to be especially transformative. In 2006, Washington was accused of making a homophobic phobic remark against a fellow actor on Grey's Anatomy and was summarily released from the show in 2007. Although he later apologized, Washington was something of a pariah in Hollywood for a period. And it was during this time when the pace of life slowed that his abiding interests in African culture and history became more pronounced. For example, in December 2006, as the Hollywood controversy was just starting to brew, He participated in a White House summit on malaria, serving as um, a Master of Ceremonies for a symposium hosted by then-President George Bush and First Lady Laura Bush. A year year earlier, at a Pan-African film festival, Washington was presented with the Canada Lee Award, named for the pioneering, multi-talented, late black actor and performer who was red-baited out of a Hollywood career and died in poverty. As part of the swag bag for this event, Washington received matrilineal and patrilineal tests from African ancestry and sent in his DNA several months before the festival took place in anticipation of what else? A reveal at the event. Washington had initially had, uh, initially had trepidations about genetic genealogy and worried in particular about how his DNA sample might be used. He had, quote, concerns about cloning and having my DNA out there somewhere to possibly fall into wrong hands, close quote. He called Gina Page, who put him at ease telling him, quote, African Ancestry is a privately owned company with no attachments to any forensic or government institution, close quote. So on the evening of this, uh, the award evening, Washington uh, received what he calls his biological parentage. He stood on the stage, as he stood on a stage at the Magic Johnson Theater in Los Angeles. And these are his words. I stood tightly gripping the African staff. That was the uh, Canada Lee Award I had just received. Dr. Kittles approached me holding an om- a folder. The room seemed to go still. I began to feel dizzy. My legs felt weak. Still, I refused to succumb. I felt transformed and complete at that moment. I heard him say, Isaiah, your results show that you share ancestry with the Mende and Temne people of Sierra Leone. I felt reborn that night. No longer did I need cowrie shells hanging from my locks, African jewelry, African dance classes, or African drumming circles. All the external things that I thought I needed to connect me to Africa were now unnecessary. Africa had been inside me all along." Since getting his genetic ancestry result, Washington's life's aim has been to highlight the importance of Sierra Leone Leone to the descendants of slaves in the American South. He was on hand on an overcast morning in February 2009 when I arrived in Charleston, South Carolina to attend what was called a ceremony of remembrance for the ancestors of dispersed um, dispersed or lost by the transatlantic slave trade. The majority of people gathered that day laid claim to Sierra Leone in some manner. The ceremony was organized by the James Madison University-based anthropologist and historian Joe Apala and other participants of homecoming pilgrimages from the United States to Sierra Leone that had taken place in 1989 and again in 1995 and 2005 as a way to connect the Gullah and Geechee communities of South Carolina to the history and culture of the West African region once known as the Rice Coast. The morning's um, spiritual leader for this ceremony of remembrance was Amadou Masali, a Sierra Leonean immigrant who had traveled from his home in Texas to officiate the ceremony. A woman named Tomalin Martin Polite stood beside Isaiah Washington on the riverbank, um, and and who had since his his DNA ancestry result described himself as a DNA Sierra Leonean. On this morning, they stood together as Ken, Tomlin Polite traces her roots back to Sierra Leone through, the convention, through conventional archival genealogy, to a little girl named Priscilla who was purchased and transmitted from Bunce Island, a British slave fort, what is now near what is now Freetown, Sierra Leone, to the coastal region of South Carolina. Masali uh, Washington and Polite formed a sort of troika, the group of three, at the center of an intimate group of about 25 people that assembled at the bend of the Ashley River. A slave ship from Bunce Island was known to have docked there in 1760, holding a public auction of enslaved Africans. Today, the site known as the Af- Ashley Ferry Landing is tucked behind a subdivision of unassuming late model suburban homes. The Ceremony of Remembrance included a group also, also included a group of about eight people who also referred to themselves as DNA Sierra Leoneans. Several were from South Carolina, and many like Isaiah Washington had employed African ancestry services in an effort to access even a measure of the family knowledge possessed by the descendants of Priscilla, the polite family who can trace their ancestry to Sierra Leone through a paper trail. Also in the group were four black women dressed, uh, dressed as bondswomen or enslaved women who were cultural workers at the nearby Magnolia Plantation, where later that morning, Isaiah Washington would preside over the dedication of small cabins built between 1850 and 1900, in which enslaved people and later sharecroppers and paid laborers resided from the era of slavery well into the late 20th century. The cabins having were been, had been reopened for heritage tourism. Winsley Hasty, a 30 something 14th, 14th generation descendant of the white family who owned the plantation come tourist site, um, had introduced, uh, introduced Washington that morning when he spoke in front of the cabins. Explaining his cre- presence and his connection to Sierra Leone and South Carolina, he proclaimed to the assembled crowd that DNA has memory. Every generation of African Americans has had its reparation struggle. Collective memory of chattel slavery grows dimmer as the years since emancipation pass. But the drumbeat for restitution, to amend the intergenerational devastation wrought by racialized human bondage, persists, sounding with renewed intensity in each decade, despite historical amnesia. By the end of the 20th century, the double helix had become part of this call for reparations. The genetics zeitgeist is sweeping. Our DNA hopes are more boundless than we fully apprehend or dare to admit. In 2004, the African-American geneticist Rick Kittles, whose ambition for ancestry testing have always included racial justice and social transformation, found his company's techniques engaged in an effort to obtain slavery reparations. African ancestry's matrilineal and patrilineal DNA analyses were engaged as 21st century tools that might offer new leverage in the long-wage battle over the payment of a debt now four centuries overdue. This novel reparation strategy was born out of a collaboration between Kittles, his African ancestry company, and a lawyer named Deidre Farmer-Pailman. The two met as graduate students at George Washington University in the late 1990s, Kittles was pursuing a doctoral degree in molecular biology and farmer Palman was working towards a master's degree in political management and lobbying. Within a few years, she would become known to some as the Rosa Parks of the the reparations litigation movement. She would conceive of a a legal plan for restitution for slave descendants that highlighted the connection between inheritance and genealogy and at one point would employ DNA analysis to draw these links together. The introduction of plaintiff's genetic ancestry testing results as evidence in the historic class action suit, farmer Paleman versus Fleet Boston, was a strategy that became necessary as the case winded its way from lower to higher courts. The 2002 class action suit for reparations for slavery ended a centuries-long struggle, In the immediate antebellum period, the federal government acknowledged that a debt was owed to the newly emancipated blacks who had worked in bondage and without pay. The debt, to use reparation activist Randall Robinson's, Robinson's phrasing, begins to accrue with the arrival of the first enslaved Africans at Jamestown, Virginia in the 17th century. A plan was put in place by the state in 1865, Today's protracted struggle for slavery reparations was inaugurated with the callous breaching of this social contract. At the close of the Civil War, General William Sherman issued Special Field Order No. 15, a directive that set aside a large swath of land confiscated by the federal government from Confederate soldiers, including portions of the southern states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. The land was to be divided into 40-acre segments and redistributed Thank you, Mom, uh, to, to newly emancipated slaves, some of whom had fought in the Union Army. By the summer of 1865, some 40,000 freedmen and women had been settled on 400,000 acres of the Sherman land, and plans were in place to distribute another 450,000 acres of land as restitution. In addition to to land, each formerly enslaved family was leased or loaned a mule, Accordingly, the refrain that emancipated men and women were promised reparations in the form of 40 acres and a mule for the discounting of the humanity and their loss of wages would soon and for long after travel in African American communities. So, soon after, this contract with freed men and women is broken. African Americans challenge this breach of contract from the start. Historian Eric Foner recounts the rueful scene at a meeting in South Carolina where um, uh, a member of the Le- Abraham Lincoln's administration um, was dispatched to explain the policy change to formerly enslaved men and women who were recent recipients of 40-acre parcels of land. This is a quote. When he rose to speak to the more than 2,000 blacks gathered at a local church, dissatisfaction and sorrow were manifested from every part of the assembly. Finally, a sweet-voiced Negro woman quieted the crowd by leading it and singing the spirituals, Nobody Knows the trouble I've, trouble I've Seen, and Wandering in the Wilderness of Sorrow and Gloom. When the freedmen fell silent, Howard begged them to lay aside their bitter feelings and to become reconciled to their old masters. He was continually interrupted by members of the audience saying, No, never, can't do it. Why do you take away our lands? Close quote. Deidre Farmer-Pailman was well aware of the fits and starts of reparations politics when she decided to take another tack, moving from legislation and lobbying to the courtroom. She's founder and executive director of the Reparations Study Group, a New York-based nonprofit, self-described as, quote, an organization that examines approaches to securing restitution for injuries afflicted upon oppressed people. After decades of failed attempts, the possibility for a strategic shift in the legal battle for reparations became apparent in 2000 when Farmer Paleman uncovered archival evidence that Aetna, a leading insurance provider, had written policies on the lives of formerly enslaved men and women. On March 26, 2002, Farmer Paleman um, Farmer-Pellman's attorney, a a gentleman named Edward Fagan, filed a historic complaint and demand for a jury trial in New York federal court on behalf of his clients and all other persons similarly situated against Fleet Boston Financial Corporation, Aetna, and CSX. Fagan was an ideal courtroom advocate because he had successfully obtained a one billion dollar settlement from Swiss banks on behalf of Holocaust victims. He was an attorney who successfully negotiated as well a five billion dollar settlement from slave laborers in Germany during the Second World War um, from whose work multinational companies um, profited. The plaintiffs argued that present day corporations such as Fleet Boston hold wealth that was obtained through the unpaid labor of slaves. The case was heard in late 2003 by the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. After close to 18 months of deliberation, in January 2004, Judge Charles Norgel, a Reagan appointee, granted the corporate defendant's motion requesting a dismissal of the case. In an opinion of more than 70 pages, Norgel's dismissal was based on several grounds, including the fact that the plaintiff's claims exceeded the constitutional authority of the court and could only be heard by either the executive or legislative branch. More significantly, he also found that the plaintiff's case, the plaintiff's case lacking with respect to the legal doctrine of standing. <laughs> the court asserted that the plaintiff's Farmer-Paylman and the others, did not demonstrate a precise connection to former slaves, and thus the plaintiffs could not sue for injury as their descendants. The reparations activists um, had two responses to the dismissal of their case. One one course of action took place outside of the court of law, and one was rooted firmly within it. First, the activists turned their focus to putting political and consumer pressure on the insurance companies that benefited from the slave trade. The plaintiffs secondly responded to the court's argument, argument that they lacked standing by bringing the slavery reparations, um, to bringing to the slavery reparations case genetic genealogy test results. In 2003, Farmer Paleman visited African Ancestry's offices in the District of Columbia. Gina Page recalled how the visit took place. Quote, she called and we made arrangements. She came to the office. It was early when our company, African Ancestry, was just getting established. She was definitely working on reparations. I remember explaining her work and the revelen- And then the re- I remember her explaining her work and the relevance of ancestry and the vision that she had for reparations. Uh, we did her test that day. She was one of the first who talked about using the test as a prerequisite to prove your authenticity, to suggest that you should receive reparations. Close quote. African ancestry's DNA tests linked the plaintiffs to the slavery in the slavery reparations suits to ethnic groups or nation-states on the continent of Africa. Genetic testing results associated Farmer Pelman, the lead plaintiff, with the Mende people of Sierra Leone, another plaintiff to a group in the Niger, a third to a group in the Gambia, as well as other contemporary locations on the African continent. In March 2005, in a lengthy decision over 100 pages long, The same Judge Norgel dismissed the plaintiff's second case in which they had submitted genetic ancestry test results, once again primarily on the basis of standing. The judge maintained that genetic genealogy tests did not sufficiently establish a relationship between deceased slaves and the signatories to the class action suit. Quoting the the judgment, there may well be no perfect method of determining exactly who is a descendant of a slave, and thus a member of the group entitled to receive reparations. Genealogical research often fails to provide significant information about a person's ancestry. The blood or one drop test, whereby anyone with any trace of African ancestry is deemed to be part of the group entitled to receive reparations, fails to dif- differentiate between descendants of U.S. slaves and those of other nationalities with African heritage. Genetic mapping or DNA testing is more promising than those above two methods, but alone it's insufficient to provide a sufficient link to homeland close quote As an ethnographer of genetic ancestry testing, I was aware increasingly of the frequency at which I was asked, have you taken the test? I was aware that this question reflected impressions about my credibility as a researcher. The subtext of, of the question was of course, how can I trust your analysis if you haven't had the experience? S- scholars and reporters often Uh, write about social phenomena that they've not experienced. Yet my growing understanding that genetic ancestry testing was not just personal but also societal and political, and my methodology of participant observation ultimately led me to embark upon my own genetic ancestry journey. In August, I um, in July of 2008, I sent my test results, I I sent my DNA sample to... um, genetic to African ancestry and the purpose of this was to have my ancestry testing results read as during as a part of a reveal In August I received an intriguing email announcement about the global African reunion where I was going to receive my reveal an event that was being put on by the Leon Sullivan Foundation the subject heading of the email a royal reveal our reveal ceremony has just become royal Please join the Leon H. Sullivan Foundation and Martin Luther King III as he learns his ancestral lineage and that of his father, the Martin Luther King Jr. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And this is all in capital letters for the very first time the African country which can claim the genetic bloodline of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. will be revealed. The Leon Sullivan Foundation's Global African Reunion was held in Atlanta, it was there in a hotel ballroom that I would learn in a public reveal ceremony standing alongside two other African-American women, one an employee of the Compound uh, Foundation launched by singer-songwriter Neo, and one a Leon Sullivan Foundation affiliate, the results of my genetic ancestry test. Kittles presented my results to me along with his business partner Gina Page, with Isaiah Washington, the evening's MC, beside him. Our three reveals were the opening act. The reveals of three prominent men would be the headlining act of the evening. If this would be a royal reveal, there would be only kings. The headliners, the reveals of not only a son of Martin Luther King Jr., but also the son of Marcus Garvey, as well as Carlton Brown, the president of Clark Atlanta University, took place before the same expectant crowd. MC Isaiah Washington signaled for Kittles to announce the results. Kittles informed Martin Luther King III that his Y-chromosome DNA analysis traced to Ireland, and his mitochondrial DNA analysis associated him with the Mende people of Sierra Leone. The same tests inferred that Garvey was connected to Portugal and Spain on the patrilineal side and to Guinea-Bissau, Sierra Leone, and Senegal on the matrilineal side. The reveal was for, I would later learn that King and Garvey had received their respective results long before this evening. The reveal was for the audience. It was to complete the narrative arc of reconciliation, to complete the genealogy ritual. The headliners, after receiving their results, were asked to speak to the audience. Standing at the podium with Kittles, Page, and Washington, um, Garvey focused on the patrilineage connection to Europe. Stepping up to the microphone, he reminded the audience of the brutal history of slavery that yielded his genetic result. King III, for his part, standing at the podium with his sister, underscored the global family aspect of his particular results. He said, quote, "For all the years that I traveled to the African continent, I always wanted to know where exactly do I hail from. So now we know. The question is, what's next?" We must go, We must, and we must quickly. Bernice, my wife, Andrea, and other family members that are here tonight, we must k- quickly get to the shores of Sierra Leone, quickly connect with the Mende people, and then we ought to do a little more research on the Portuguese side. But from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you for this incredible connection. Close quote. The responses of Garvey and King highlighted the narrative and contextual framing that is so crucial to the social life of DNA. Genetic markers in and of themselves have no meaning or value. They are like letters on the page of a book for someone who has not yet been taught to read. But we learn to read the significance of DNA in science labs and at genealogical gatherings. Garvey and King similarly received ancestral inferences to both the continent of Europe and the continent of Africa. But their interpretations gave different tonal emphases. As the scions of historic race leaders, the participation of King and Garvey made clear the social justice and social repair motivations of genetic ancestry testing. Yet on this evening, there were no exaltations of up, up, you mighty race, as Garvey famously encouraged his followers. There was no overt expression of a renewed vision of equality as articulated by Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech. The DNA test revelations played out as as a 21st century legacy of the civil rights tradition and were implied to carry forward this work of transformation and imagination. These reveals nevertheless lacked Garvey's organizational structure and King's prophetic egalitarianism. Indeed, the prevailing social vision on offer that night through a large projection of the Reverend Leon Sullivan brandishing an African passport that loomed over the ballroom stage and Washing- isaiah washington 's wielding that night of his own recently acquired Sierra Leonean passport was one of escape. We asked DNA to embody some of our loftiest goals for social betterment, tied to our genealogical aspirations, our ambitions for ourselves, our communities, and our world. The initiatives described in the book, in the social life of DNA are taking place at a time when other avenues for social justice and racial repair, such as affirmative action, have been curtailed or have lost or are losing popular support. At the risk of mixing metaphors, with this work of reconciliation, the DNA, the double helix works as a spyglass that telescopes back in time, allowing us to see the healing that remains to be achieved in American society. While attention on genetics today is understandably focused on the potential for its medical application, it's by paying attention to the social life of DNA, how it circulates both within and beyond medicine, that we can truly assess our collective condition. Reconciliation projects spurred by DNA testing may be starting points for such dialogues, but we cannot rely on science to propel social change. The boom in genetic ancestry testing over the last decade has been extraordinary. Its ever-rising and decade-plus of staying power confirms that this pursuit is neither a fad nor merely a trend. For good or for not, we use DNA as a portal to the past that yields insights for the present and the future. We use DNA to shine light on social trauma and to show how historic injustices continue to resonate today. Thank you. So my friend and colleague, uh, Nathaniel Comfort, who, for those of you who arrived later, is um, a historian of biology and genetics at so John Hopkins, is going to join me for a bit of a conversation, and then we'll open up things.
2: It's, uh, it's, Thanks, Vivian. Really, it's a delightful, delightful read. I recommend it to you all if you haven't bought it already. Um, so I just have a few notes. So, Alondra, um, let's just start by maybe having you tell us uh, how you got interested in this topic and and how you did the research.
1: So um, I'm a social scientist, I'm a sociologist, I study the sociology of science and medicine, um, and I also study the sociology of race, and I'm interested in the experiences of um, African-descended communities. And um, so that work led me to do all sorts of projects, a project on Afrofuturism, a project on the Black Panthers' health activism, and and now this book. And I guess the, the bigger issue that I'm interested in, or that I'm learning as I do more writing, that I'm interested in is... How do the communities, I think what these, all the this, this sort of through line for all of these projects has been, how do the communities that have been most damaged by the scientific gaze, by medical experimentation, um, who have literally been the objects of scientific and medical research, how do these communities in particular um, become the subjects and agents of science and medicine, right? And what can we learn from the sort of larger leap that it takes for some communities of color to engage science and medicine about what the stakes are, right? So I I feel like for communities with this sort of history of dealing with the Tuskegee experiment, of dealing with here in Baltimore, the the story of Henrietta Lacks, which is one story that we know about what what is a a larger story that um, is the experience of many people, If we can think about how these communities find a way to engage, challenge, respond to science and technology, I think it offers us potentially some broader insights for how we can have um, a critically engaged relationship to science and medicine in this moment where it's becoming sort of bigger and bigger. So um, when I learned in 2002 or 2003 in a newspaper article, um, I write about this in the Los Angeles Times, that this company, African Ancestry, was emerging, um, I thought, oh, gosh, I've got to study. What's going to happen to black identity? How are people going to think about themselves? What's going to happen to black political culture um, if it becomes the case that, you know, the Haley journey, the Roots journey can be done with genetic ancestry testing? So that's where I began. And then, you know, I end up doing, this is in the early days. So I think there were two or three in 2003 companies um, that did direct a consumer genetic ancestry company in the early aughts. So one of the things you should know about African Ancestry is that it was with Family Tree DNA, one of the pioneering genetic ancestry testing companies. And it's, and it's um, you know, uh, many other companies have come and gone, um, but that company along with uh, Family Tree DNA are still in business. So it was a pioneer in the industry, and now it's a sort of veteran of the industry, this company. And um, so, but I had to go to conventional genealogy conventions and societies because this was before we had television shows about genetic ancestry testing. This was before we had young people um, as well as con, you know conventional, more conventionally aged genealogists who tend to be sort of 50 or older. Um, so I found myself at small genealogy societies, genealogy meetings, genealogy clubs. Um, looking for folks who would be the early adopters of these technologies. Um, And I started interviewing them and talking to them and following them around. I found myself also at um, academic genetic conferences, talked to a lot of genetic companies, um, purveyors of genetic companies, and studied a lot of companies because I was sort of following the field as it was emerging um, over the last decade um, in the United States. But for the purposes of the book, I ended up writing exclusively about, um, almost exclusively about African ancestry.
2: Um, so I want to follow up on the uh, something you were just, uh, just talking about. You and I, in our work, have both examined ways in which science and genetics in particular have been unsafe for poor, vulnerable communities. Uh, so how did the people that you spoke with, you did a lot of interviews uh, as part of your research, how did those people balance this history with... Their use of genetic analysis. Um,
1: That's a really important question for this work. So, a couple. I'll answer it in two ways. One way is that. Um, many of the people I spoke to would say repeatedly to me that they trust African Ancestry because it's a black-owned company, and they trust Rick Kittles in particular. And I write a lot about him, and um, some of the reactions to the book have been like, oh, you really like him. And, you know, I like Rick. I've spent a decade or more studying him. But it's more that I'm trying to capture in writing about him what people find so compelling and charismatic about him, and I'm trying to convey that in the work. And so he has a very kind of folksy you know, a vuncular style that's disarming, and people do trust him, you know. Um, And he is able to talk about the testing that his company does um, in a way that just says explicitly, like, we know about the history of scientific exploitation with our communities. And, you know, he's able to do that as an insider, and then he's able to say, but I won't do that, right? (laughs) Um, Later, you know, uh, as... Um, the Innocence Project evolves, and we start to have a, a large and robust social movement around um, uh, mass incarceration. Um, you know, Rick also talks about how he, you know, will not allow law enforcement officials to have access to the samples and these sorts of things. So it becomes not only safe from medical exploitation or scientific exploitation, but also safe in the way that he talks about it from. Um, the criminal justice system. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that, you know, I think people are balancing, it's like a cost-benefit analysis, the stakes of making the risk of sending in the sample, because the people I'm interviewing are not only using this company, they're using companies that are not black-owned and have nothing to do with Rick Kittles as well, Um, and that the the desire to learn something about themselves and um, by expansion... Learn something or be able to say something about the racial history of this country is, I think, um, for them a benefit that outweighs that weighs the stakes. And then there's a—I write a little bit at the beginning of the book about um, the African Burial Ground Project in Lower Manhattan, where the um, Rick Kittle's—it was a—he a, was a graduate student working on this project—and he develops the techniques that become his company. And there you have. A lot of active, articulate activism from the black community about genetic ancestry testing, about genetic analysis, which would become genetic ancestry testing. And so what happens there, just in brief, is that the community leaders, the black community leaders and participants say, we're not against you know, doing dental morphology. We're not against doing, measuring bones and doing, you know, measuring crania and measuring um, other parts of the body, doing scientific measurement and experimentation on these African remains. uh, if we can do them in a way that offers a kind of analysis that's attuned to history, that's attuned to the culture ways that we could find in the burials—were they, um, you know, buried with cowrie shells? Were they buried with um, practices that, selected, that suggested that they were Christians or Muslims? Uh, were the shrouded or the body shrouded or not shrouded? So that the activists understood—I mean, they were walking, as you suggest, Nathaniel, a very fine line—but they understood that they could use science to get information that they needed and it didn't have to be exploitative necessarily, that science could be used with an interpretive frame that was not only racially essentialist. So how this comes up with the activists is that, on the one hand, they're saying, we don't want any analysis to be done, um, and this this is a quote that would amount to the, quote, biological racing of our ancestors' remains, right? So they really understood about the history of of biological essentialism and about scientific racism, and they thought that forms of genetic analysis could be used that didn't do that, that there was a sort of another interpretive pathway um, that for them was an interdisciplinary one that used the genetic analysis not only by itself as the sort of truth and the barometer of who people are, but put it in conversation and in a kind of um, investigative ecology with what we know about oral history, what we know about you know conventional history, what we know about um, archaeology radiocarbon dating and the like and so that example for me becomes really important because it suggests a couple of things that you know many of these consumers are actually very have thought about the historical complexities are very kind of nuanced and sophisticated, and are making um, educated, or doing some educated risk-taking, right, that sees the benefit of this information um, as being um, more powerful than what its cost might be. That said, you know, I think fundamentally to use genetics to give you identity, right? I mean, the, the, the companies that do this work are not companies that are engaged in this larger interdisciplinary way of thinking about identity, right? You send in your DNA sample they give you your composite of racial groups or of an ethnic identity. Um, And so, you know, I think there's a way in which unwittingly um, it certainly does some essentializing of identity. Um, But, you know, as I've written elsewhere as well, you know, there's this kind of fascinating feedback loop. So the sort of act of using these companies might be read as um, doing a kind of racial essentialism around genetics, like genetics is my identity. But then if you continue to follow people beyond the moment that we see on these television shows, right, and talk about what they do with their results, as I try to do in this book, um, you see that it's far more complicated than that, and they're constantly making choices and negotiations about what parts of the test they take are true or not. So consumers don't say, like, oh, I think all of this is true. Um, They might say, I think it's true because um, this... You know, ethnic group in Africa are avid potters or weavers, and in my family, we're potters or weavers, right? And that's not, that's about culture and culture ways, right? Why that result is compelling to you. The genetics sort of informs it, but the genetics is not all of it.
2: Yeah, one of the things I, I really enjoyed is the way you show that the, the social context in which the science is used really matters. You know, the same science can be used in one context and be, and be really destructive or offensive and placed in another context, it can be really productive. Um, so following up on what you just were talking about, what does your book tell us about why genealogy is so potent for so many people? And recognizing that DNA and, and, and genetics isn't all of it, uh, you do say, I th- and persuasively to me, that DNA has a, a, a special, a special power, a special potency. Genetics, genetic polit- i think you say—genetic politics is is special politics, yes. right? So, why is DNA given so much weight in genealogical research? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, let me see if I can answer that succinctly. I mean, so. Um, you know, I, there's a part of the book where I write about the social power of DNA, and we were talking earlier this evening about um, my my late great teacher, Dorothy Nelkin, who um, wrote a book called The DNA Mystique, and I sort of pick up some of the work that she does. And, you know, we think that, that we use these... these um, uh, these metaphors to talk about DNA—we call it the Holy Grail. We call it the ultimate blueprint. You know, these words that give it a lot of authority and empower—the secret, secret of life. You know, pick your pick your metaphor. We've used it to talk about DNA, um, and so. We just give it a lot of... A, we do this to science anyways, right? I mean, we've become, even in just, you know, our lifetime, um, a society in which people want more data and more facts. Like, that's how you, you know, um, you mobilize, you're mobilize. mobilizing data against data and facts against facts. And I think that's a very, um, you know, certainly different from, like, when I was in high school. You know, facts where you had to support your argument, but... Now, it's not only a kind of rhetorical argument. There needs to be a a kind of fact, you know. And there's a way in which DNA, because it comes from us, right, your DNA is sort of embodied in you, that it's um, understood to be the kind of ultimate fact, right? It's the the fact that trumps all other other facts. Um, And it also has, um, and this is why I'm trying to capture a little bit with the, the phrase, the social life of DNA, it can answer lots of different questions and do lots of different work all at the same time, right? So we use DNA in the criminal justice system for forensic purposes. We use DNA in family courts to do paternity testing. We use it for genealogical purposes to do genomic and genetic ancestry testing that's different from paternity testing. Uh, We use it in clinical medicine. We're trying to use it now for precision medicine and to think about targeted, individualized medicine. I mean, we we use it for everything. We use it, um, you know, data scientists are trying to think about the helical structure, about the double helix, and about whether or not um, we can sort of pack it with data, right? We're using it to um, identify and conserve art, you know, um, synthetic DNA and and human DNA. So it it does a lot of work for us, right? And the more work it does, um, the more social power it gets, you know? Um, So I think that's partly what it is. But I think there's, there's also an older answer, which is, that goes really back to the Bible. I mean, we think that families are important. We think that blood matters. We think that relationships matter, you know? I mean, the Old Testament is about Abraham begat, 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 right? Like, genealogy has really always mattered for how we think about societies and why we think societies um, are important and about how we think they should, or rather not why we think they're important, but how they should be structured, right? So that goes from biblical times. um, You could also take this to Um, royal lineages. So genealogy has already always sort of um, um, mattered, um, really importantly for our social structure. So you marry these things together, right? The sort of profound um, and broad circulation of the social power of DNA with our sort of deep and biting investment and why families and kinship matter. And you have this moment. And I would just add also that um, the Roots moment, the Haley moment for those of us who are older than some of us here, um, <laughs> yeah, creates really, you know, the expectation that you can do this. So, you know, and I guess I, I should say those, for people who are a bit younger, you know, Roots comes on. It's one of the very first – it might have been a fact within the first miniseries to be on television – uh, it might have been, yeah. So formally, for the the, the sort of the genre of television, it's important. Um, but it also is a moment where we have three television channels. People aren't watching Netflix. You're not watching television asynchronously. You're everyone is sitting and watching Roots together, right? So it became a really big um, sort of formative and transformative um, moment and a kind of national conversation on race that we hadn't tried to have. But it creates the expectation for you know, a couple of generations of us that you could do this root-seeking, right? And then, you know, people try to read Roots. It's a 700-page book. I mean, I think that I was sort of eight or nine years old maybe when it came out. I can't remember. But, but it was, like, about the biggest book I'd ever seen. I mean, you know, I thought I really wanted to read it, and it was just, this, it's a huge book. And, you know, it's, and, you know, so there's been accusations that, Ailey, that Haley sort of, fictionalized some of the book but even with all of that he did a lot of research and it's more research than most of us will ever have the time or the resources to do so part of what also the third answer is that what makes um, genetic genealogy and genealogy in this moment so um you know, why it's sort of having this kind of renaissance in this moment is because we have all these digitized vital records now that you can just go onto Ancestry and get access to. You, you know, you can, you know, doing genetic Ancestry testing takes little to no labor at all. It's just, it's a way of fulfilling expectations that I think have existed for a long time for people, and it's much, much easier than many of us thought it would ever be. Okay. Um.
2: All right, so I think we're probably getting close to the end of our time, so let me wrap up by uh, saying that you described beautifully uh, the benefits, the risks, and the limitations of genetic genealogy. So uh, let me try to close this out by by pushing you a little bit and asking you to uh, offer some suggestions on how we can best ensure – that DNA science is used to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks? Yeah, that's a
1: great question. So, you know, one of the the conundrums of um, of direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing is that these are, for the most part, with the exception of 23andMe, which is partly owned by Google, they're privately owned companies, right? So, which means that they don't have reporting requirements to shareholders. They don't have to have necessarily an end-of-year report that tells you how much they earned and lost and these sorts of things. And so, um, and, you know, in parallel with that, um, they, many of them hold their, Their proprietary databases, you know. So you send your sample to a company, and they have a proprietary database and an algorithm that they use to infer what your ancestry is, or um, based on the kind, depending on the kind of test you use. And so, for, for obvious reasons, I mean, many of these companies hold this information as a trade secret, right? So, the long and short of this is that there's not a lot of transparency in the industry. So you can't, you know, it's hard to know. People often say to me, "Well, is it accurate?" You know, it's hard to say. There's not a gold standard for the industry. There's not a professional organization that's that has come out to say a very good, very accurate, very robust, you know, mitochondrial DNA test uses this this many STRs, um, uh, standard tandem repeat markers, or you know, um, uh, uses this has this many. Samples in its in its uh, reference database, right? Um, and so there's there's that piece that makes it complicated. The other piece is that um, you know there are a lot of scientists, in particular some social scientists too, who are very very critical of these testing of these kinds of tests. My the biological anthropologist um, at UNC, Jonathan Marks, um, uh, you know he calls it snake oil. I mean he says it's like completely, it's like you know one removed from divination, like it's like ridiculous to him all of this. You know, I think um, he also uses some. He's a fiery guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and so part of it is that, and for people who really believe in the scientific enterprise, is that, you know, the things that make science, some of the things that make science science, like um, can you verify these results? Can you replicate these results? Like the things that you learn in a history of science class are like this is what makes science science can't be done with genetic ancestry testing, right? So what can, you know, so, you know, without... Um, overvalorizing science as a kind of perfect ideal, you know, I think a true scientific method here in which there was um, transparency about the data, um, that if someone wanted to try to replicate it, they were able to do that, in which there were standards with regards to how many markers should be used and these sorts of things would sort of get us, you know, closer to something that, um, that um, um, mitigates against the harms. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Okay, so we have some time for uh, discussion, and I hope that you'll participate as well. You, you know some of this stuff more than me. Yes, sir. Do we, Vivian, do we, is there a mic back there, or should we? Um, I'll stand up. Okay. I'll repeat the question. How about that? Okay.
3: Some sense of how close those two tribes, nations, ethnic groups were, but but he makes uh, he makes the claims he makes about taking someone back to Sierra Leone uh, when in fact he will find those markers among many different ethnic groups. He simply picked the one where it was where it appeared most frequently. Yeah. And right. and, it, and yes, there's a reveal and there are tears, but. Uh, uh, but I believe that, that what Rick Kittles has done, uh, in some, in many ways, despite getting people excited about it, is, is a disservice. I'll, I'll leave it there. I, I can talk Sure.
1: I, I guess I, I think... Um, you know, I wouldn't say that the work is a disservice because people find it really meaningful for their lives, you know, whether or not we agree and think it's accurate or true, yeah? So um, I also think... Uh, you know, I have skepticism about the industry and the practice more generally, and so um, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I guess I, as somebody who's studied lots of different companies, including this one, I guess I don't see how we would slice this company off as being the, you know, the only one that has a problem. I think all of these ancestry inferences are making, you know the uh, ancestry painter, the ancestry finder that for 23andMe. I mean, there are no pure populations that are sub-Saharan African. So they're creating an algorithm and they're using some samples. I mean, there is truly no way... No, Can you let me... they will finish. Knowing human history, that we can say there are four pure genetic groups, sub-Saharan African, Asian, European, that we can give people percentages of. We no longer have pure groups, even if we ever had pure groups, right? And so... Um, you know, I, you know, people can sort of quibble about different companies, but I think that the issues that you point out are issues with the industry more generally, and they're very much the limitations that I write about in the book. I follow and I don't want to take a time, but well. Yeah. But with I've done all of the
3: companies.
1: Well, but How even those mean? models assume that there were pure populations, no, right? No, 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 they don't. No, they don't
3: really. Uh, and I'm, we're going to go too far afield for me. I'm a mathematician, and we don't, most people don't want to go there. Uh,
1: but uh, mathematicians uh, don't, don't, don't make assumptions <laughs> 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 all <laughs> the time, <laughs> all day. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Other questions, comments? Yeah. Oh, Dr. Wimbush. Yeah, you know, I think part of the book that I'm more intrigued in, of course, is the issue about reparations.
4: Another thing, I mean, in response to what you just said, that I think that it's interesting if you look at the history of what you do very well in your book, that the denunciation, if you please of genetic testing, didn't start really emerging until black folks started doing it. Uh, when white folks were doing it, it was cool, it was trendy, they would go to their Mayflower Park, you know, the Mayflower <laughs> and say, well, I trace my DNA back to the Mayflower and whichever one of those intruders came to this country. But when black folks started doing it, it became like it was bad. You know, it was something wrong with it. There was more criticism of it. So i just like
5: to put
1: that out. There's no question. Great Thank you. <laughs> you. You know, I think for the people who are the descendants of slaves, you know, wh- you know whether we want to think the findings are, you know, accurate or valid, we can, you know, still debate that. Um, what the tests do differently in the sort of social context is to shine a light on the history of slavery and racial discrimination. So um, uh, so but that's when things get really complicated, you know, and I think it's, um, it's, a, it's, a shame, you know, it's a shame that we don't have the conversations about the legacy of, of slavery in this country that, that we certainly need to have. I have a question, I mean, a kind of a comment. Kind of. Yes, mother, this is my mother. <laughs>
5: okay. Well, I think it's important to understand, at least personally for me, when I read, I read the book, and I and then I was, you know, I'm excited. Well, come, where where are we from? You know, I think a lot of people in America don't understand that an African American you have, you don't know. It's like you've got to know where you was to know where you are, and you you don't know. You know, you can sit there and say, oh well, my, you know, we're Irish, we're this, we're that, but if you're African American. You, you know, to say Africa is a huge continent, what does that mean? But yeah. to get this test, be it valid or not, and to have somebody come back and say, oh, you're from,
1: where did it tell us? Cameroon. Cameroon. And <laughs> from the? lake
5: Bimileke, Within a week, I met a girl who was from Cameroon, from that tribe, and I mean, she was like, Beautiful like thing. <laughs> and you know what? we did No, well we, you know we all look alike. Um, <laughs> and, but um, just it was, it's just a beautiful thing to have some idea. Now even if it has some error yeah. in it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, who cares? You're giving me something now. Maybe mm-hmm. in twenty years when I'm dead and gone, you know,
1: it'll be more refined. But it's good enough for me now. <laughs> so this was in uh <laughs> So the result was in 2009 to 2010. Mother finds someone at church. I mean, I have a lot of instances in the book in which people the tests become occasions for connection with people in, in, in their communities, which I think is a, a good and interesting thing. So mother finds someone at her church who is from Cameroon, who's from the bamaleke ethnic group, an immigrant to the United States. This was four or five years ago, and you know they had Thanksgiving with us this year. You guys, so some of my cousins. <laughs> Yes, she was at Thanksgiving, you met her. You met her. (laughs) She made goat curry with plantain for the to go with the turkey. (laughs) Yes, sir.
4: Variation, but the basic difference is there because men have. Excuse me for being frank. Men have nipples. Women have nipples. But I always look at something that the value in something is in the use. What in, in the use of it? Right? Obviously, I'm not going to be breastfeeding, right? So it's kind of confusing to me to approach it from the point. Why, say, why do I have nipples? Because they serve no purpose, right? I don't breastfeed. I'm just some pleasure-driven activities, right? Um, But that's on both sides. I'm not trying to make money.
5: Yeah, 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 sure.
4: I've had the experience of being in various parts of the world and always look at things from the point of kind of like a cake, you know. Most cakes have the same general ingredients, but you can vary things to get a particular outcome, right? Whether it's by purpose or by default, you know? There's, there's so many external factors that's going on in the world, science, religion, war, you know, art, all kind of stuff comes into play. But I always look at something from the point of what's the least common denominator? Because if you focus on the difference, you're never going to get to resolving an issue, right? Because I can go anywhere in the world and find somebody who looks just like me I've walked down the street and literally seen my twin, right? And the shock of it is like, well, you know, somebody said everybody has a twin somewhere, an evil twin they call it sometimes. (laughs) But the fact that I can look over my right shoulder and the lady sitting behind me looks nothing like me, right? But I'm curious of what the whole purpose behind, I mean, the science of it is great, the genetics and all that. But my thing is, is somebody using it to say to, to prove that we're all related, Yes. Or to say that we are different. And let me know, because I don't get long. No, it's a
1: great question, actually. Yeah.
4: um, Everything has a genesis. But we look at usually what the present is, right? So we talk about race and people of color. And I, I look at these terms like, to me, it has no validity. Because obviously, everybody has a color, some part of the spectrum, you fall in that grayscale thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, at certain parts of my life, I've been a little darker because of what I was doing. I was a lifeguard, And I stayed out in the sun all day. I actually walked in the house one time. My mother didn't recognize me because I had gotten so dark. But then at a point, I, my skin started peeling because I was overexposed. During the wintertime, my body varies in complexion based on what it's exposed to. So, so the question is about... But I'm, I'm looking at the fact that there's a the least common denominator. Who's the primordial of all of us? Well, what is the problem of all of us, right? Because people talk about African um, identity, and uh, I forget the exact words you use, right? So I'm wondering, okay, are we using this to say, okay, let's go back, 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 and say, what have we found that was the genesis of all this stuff? Because we in the present day, constantly talk about people of color. I'm like, what is that? What is a people of color? It means literally, it's a political category.
1: So, okay, so what's the, I don't, uh, I guess the only thing I would offer, maybe maybe Nathaniel will... will
4: I have ancestors in Norway, or Sweden, and literally I do, but I don't look like them, right? I have ancestors from South America, right? I have ancestors from Africa.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to have to, there's other people trying to ask questions. So what's the... No, I think that's right. I mean I in the you know in the book there's this I quote this often cited quote you probably cite this quote too from um, a very important geneticist named Mary Claire King who says you know that the sort of paradox or conundrum of this of this moment is that we're all the same and yet we're all different right so it's which is another way of saying you know all humans we are you know ninety nine point you know ninety eight um um percent um, alike, um, and that with contemporary um, technologies and techniques, we have the ability to parse that 0.1 or that 0.2%. And so that's where the differences lie, and they're more likely to be, um, as you suggest, differences of frequency. So it's very it's very rare that you have, um, there's like a Duffy Null marker that you, that is almost exclusively in people of African descent. But for the most part, the markers that we're looking at um, that we tried to, that are robust for talking about ancestry testing are in a spectrum, right? So, uh, you know, this population is more likely to have 10 or 20 percent of this marker in its group, while this population will, is more likely to have 70 or 80 percent, right? That's not to say that it doesn't occur. So, yeah. No, I, I'm going to let Nathaniel respond and then we're going to go to two more questions. Okay.
2: I could just tag on to that and say that. Uh, these genetic techniques can really be used um, for both purposes. I mean, the the humanitarian response is that, as you were saying, we're all uh, we're you know we're we're all related, and it it's a it, it, as you said, grayscale. And um, the the uh, so genetics has been used to to trace back all the way to you know what they believe to be the first. Uh, the, you know, the first human being, the first homo sapiens, and they call this mitochondrial Eve, right? And so that's part of the, the, the continuity that you're talking about. And yet the other side of the, the question is one that you spend a lot of time talking about, which is identity, right? And we all want to believe that we're connected, but we all also want to believe that we're special, Right? And so I think, you know, the, the trick in in, uh, in using the science well and in a in a humane way is is balancing those two sides.
6: yes, yes. And bring your case not the literal reparations then, as well as sort of reconciliatory reparations mm-hmm. right um, and you know one of the things that I' pulled from reading the book and thinking about thinking through well these cases aren't really they're not even passing the you know the, the smell test to get to the first stage right um, but early in your book you also talked about the whole controversy over Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and Sally Hemings, and so on and so forth. And I guess this is a sort of comment and a question. Comment sort of along the lines of wouldn't it be ironic if the way the road to reparations through genetic genealogy is by testing for white ancestry and not black So that's sort of one way of thinking about it. And then it leads me to ask this question Mm -hmm. of dealing with the whole, really the real issue of truth and reconciliation. How do we, I mean, you don't really answer, especially because I don't think you do. Whether or everything I've read, but I really want to put it out there and then ask how do we get to the point where we can do capital T, a capital R truth and reconciliation process by using the DNA as part of the sort of platform for doing mm-hmm. stuff? So it's sort of a common question. This is a great question.
1: I mean, I, I I specifically use the word reconciliation, reconciliation projects, not. Um, repair, reunification, you know, because I'm trying to gesture precisely to a TRC process, you know. And, um, you know, writing about, you know, we know from um, the, the, lots of folks have written about this. Dr. Wimbush has written about this, if he's still back there, about the many times that Representative John Conyers has tried to bring to the Congress, you know, a bill that would just ask that we have a conversation about the history of slavery in this country, right? Um, And so that's something that could get there. And you know, maybe these tests will play a role, maybe they won't. But what I feel like they do um, in their, uh, and your question was sort of circling around this, in their meaning making and in their cultural and symbolic significance, is that they shine a light on the past, right? And they make it the history of slavery very immediate and the lives of people who are sitting in this room, right? So, and it, it makes it sort of alive and living in our lives in a different sort of way. So, as you know, as opposed to um, a response to you know a post-racial society that says like that was so long ago and none of my ancestors held slaves and that has nothing to do with me, these tests that you know for good or for not, as I say often in the book, are trying to get at that, the moment in history of, you know, community and identity before the slave trade, right, um, in that very gesture, shine a light on that past. And so it seems to me a way that people in their own lives are trying to force the conversation. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if you remember, there's the one part where I say that these are sort of micro truth and reconciliation commissions, right, these tests, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but I think what the sort of, um, the popularity of this testing tells us, I think, what foment and activism in the streets in response to the murders of black people at the hands of police, right, are all telling us is that we actually need to have a real reckoning with this history and its current effects in our lives. Um, and genetic ancestry testing may not be the best way to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty bullish on you know how liberatory science can be even though I think this is a very these are interesting stories where I wouldn't have written the book um But I think to the extent that it is a kind of flashlight on the past, um, I think that's the role that genetic ancestry testing plays. And, you know, like you, I think I I hope we can get to a TRC process, although we know from, you know, colleagues and um, activists in South Africa that it hasn't been a perfect process there. Right. Um, But I think looking from, you know, our side of the Atlantic to the other, even that and, you know, I think would be a useful step here. I could just Please. add like
2: twenty words, yeah. I think that 's a, a great question, and I think it 's another component of the answer to my last question about how we can use this yeah. uh, you know in a in a constructive way yeah. and I think DNA uh, analysis can be one tool in this, uh, but one way that that we need to do to to use it constructively, I think is to be wary of the hype and aware of the limitations and place it in a context in which we use it for our purposes and not let it be, you know, it use us
1: last question, question? yeah oh, okay Uh, (laughs) is there one more? more? let's hear from the young people (laughs) (laughs)
5: Determinism and um, and like what the um, implications are for for having, as they say, you know, the secret of life or whatever. Um, so, uh, is there are you at all worried that um, that this uh, sort of like looking back and trying to trying to figure out identity is going to be overshadowed by um, other you know more um, and more consumerist um, ideas for
1: how to use the technology. Yeah, I think it's already overshadowed by that. I mean it's a great question. These are these are consumer products. You are buy you you are buying your identity. I mean, like that's one way of saying yeah. it. So you are paying someone this is you, this is you and you're paying no, no, no. someone and you know, and as I sort of hypothesize in the book, I mean, why I think people think that they can sort of negotiate their test results after they get them is because they paid for them. It's like the sample, you know, the sample comes from my body. I'm a consumer and I paid for it. And, you know, the result says, um, uh, you know, Isaiah Washington, for example, has, has a, an inference to Sierra Leone. And then on the patrilineal line, there's an inference to, gosh, I can't remember. Is it Angola? Yeah, thank you. And you know, I so I interview him and I say, well, why are you building schools and invested in kind of reconciliation between Gully Geechee people and South Carolinians and people in Sierra Leone? And what about Angola? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, um, women, ladies come first. You know, um, this is kind of sh- weird chivalrous, kind of re- <laughs> pseudo chivalrous sort of reaction. Because Sierra Leone was the mitochondrial finding, so but that you know, but that happens so often in genetic ancestry testing with people I talk about, you know, that this kind of negotiation, and not only with these kinds of tests, but with um, tests that give you, you know, regions and inferences of 50,000 years ago and sort of Ethiopia or you know uh, large swaths of Europe. Um, So so it's already that's already happening. I would say Um, uh, what you suggest is is already happening, but I think that. Um You know people are trying to to tell stories and make meaning out of this result, and that's not to say that genetic essentialism um, isn't a current a current um, within this or through this or a piece of it um, but that they that it enters a very complicated world and it enters i mean you know so imagine you're you know, fifty, sixty-year-old woman who's lived her life all this way, and then you get this other information. Even if you are a kind of total solid true believer in genetic information, this, do, you, do you jettison everything else you thought you knew about your life? You know, I think it's not it's not possible to do. And I also think you know that kind of fundamental desire to know, and that fundamental sort of who am I, is a really Kind of basic human question that all of us share. I mean, it's more acute for the historical reasons of the Middle Passage for African Americans, but all people share it. One of the my more interesting things, you know, the more, my interesting observations watching the evolution of 23andMe, which emerges, which is, I think, starts in 2007, 2008, so several years after um, African Ancestry and Family Tree DNA, is that initially that company did not do ancestry testing. Right, and so I remember going to genetics conferences, and Joanna Mountain, who in the early days was my colleague. She was a biological anthropologist at Stanford, but now works for Twenty Three and Me. And in the early days, her coming to conferences and saying, um, "You know, this is what we're doing with this company that I'm working with," and um, but we're really oversampled with Ashkenazi Jews in our database, and if we can't build a database that has a more more diverse samples then we're not going to be able to give people robust results, right? And so because they wanted, because we now know that the end game was pharma, right? And was, you know, Parkinson's testing and these sorts of things, um, we now know why they needed a bigger and more diverse database, right? And so it's a, it's like within a year after the company starts that they start offering ancestry testing, they weren't going to do that initially. But they knew that to get more customers, the thing that people want to know is sort of who am I, you know? And, um, and then, you know, a couple of years ago, they partner with the Urban League because they didn't have enough African-American samples in their database, right? So this is just the basics of big data. Like we're talking about genetic ancestry testing, but it's sort of the basic of, um, you know, the sort of robustness and veracity of how any kind of big data works, right? And so they were giving, they gave free um, genetic ancestry tests to 10,000 African Americans so they could have that information in their database, right? Um, So, um, you know, the need to know is, is sort of profound, you know? You send, um, it depends on the company, so you can uh, take a, it's called a buccal swab, so you get a little Q-tip that has kind of slightly jagged edges, and you can rub that on your cheek. Some companies use saliva that you spit in a cup, you send it back to a company, usually via FedEx, and they have it, you know, sometimes they have laboratories that they own, sometimes they franchise out the analysis, and they get the data back and match it against their database.
5: Question, so she got eight positive of blood, and I got eight positive. you think we some Kim way down the road somewhere?
1: i don 't know enough about the HLA stuff. are you with the blood antigens uh, that 's not my that's, area there 's some the relation there 's some relation to genetics um,
2: again the the blood groups the, the blood groups have similar kinds of, of um, mixes characteristic uh, percentages mm-hmm. of different blood groups in different regions, mm-hmm. so you know in Sweden, you might have Ten percent A positive and you know, twenty percent O negative and so forth. And so you can you can get some ge- uh, geologic, geographical information that way, but those blood groups are are very widely distributed. So th- you can't tell very much by just looking at one blood group. Same you
5: categorize
2: that blood. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and do we believe it yeah. or not? Right. What you want to believe. Right. Right. And again, you'd have to use many different markers in order to get any kind of reliability. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Alondra and Nathaniel, for that very, very interesting conversation. Thank you all for coming out.